temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Every election day, voters are tasked with picking a side, tasked with identifying whoever's values and ideas most closely align with their own. Almost always, it's a Democrat or a Republican. No governor in Virginia has ever won when he's of the same or he or she's the same party as the sitting president. But what does identifying with a party really mean today? In a country where 40% of us identify as independent, where recent events like the Great Recession, the Me Too movement, the COVID-19 pandemic, nationwide protests following George Floyd's murder, and the rise of Donald Trump have forced many Americans to rethink and perhaps pivot our personal and political identities. Politics has always been identity politics. How important is the label of Democrat or Republican today when droves of young voters are embracing democratic socialism? And many on the right are following a Trump cult of personality as opposed to a party. Are we stuck in a cycle of identity politics because there are only two major groups to choose from? Do political labels even help us find the representatives that care about our needs? Or do they just create chatter that distracts us from addressing dire situations? This week on Connect the Dots, we dive into identity politics to see if labels are tearing the country apart and whether they're just being used unfairly by opponents to scare voters. Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institute will tell us how identity politics shapes both the Democratic and Republican parties. Writer and political researcher Jonathan Blanks talks to us about how an issue like defund the police can create tension within a party. And we'll head to Buffalo to see how political labels shook up the latest race for mayor there. I'm Linda Lopez, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey. While our country may be politically polarized, we appear to be united in one thing, dissatisfaction. We can see this in the dismal approval ratings for both current President Biden and former President Donald Trump, even though they're on different sides of the political spectrum. A Pew Research Center study released this month identified nine different groups of political affiliations in the U.S. rather than just two. Although the center found broad support for a third party, it also found that independent voters often have little in common with each other. To help us understand why Americans are feeling so much dissatisfaction, Connect the Dots spoke to Elaine K. Mark, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. 
both parties have failed to address two of the big issues in American politics. One is increasing inequality, a sense that somehow the whole economic system is stacked against the little guy and in favor of the big guy. And there are people in both political parties who feel this quite strongly. Um, there are Trump supporters who feel this. There are Bernie Sanders supporters who feel this, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? Because each party has its faction that that feels that very strongly. And related to this are two issues that I would make put as sub subheadings, right? One mm-hmm. is healthcare. Uh, most people still have uh, federal. You have most people still have private sector health care. And the government doesn't seem to be able to do anything about the rise in the cost of health care and the cost of prescription drugs. Um, Medicare takes care of a, Medicare and Medicaid take care of about half the population. But for the working population, most people have in, insurance through their uh, employer and things seem to be out of control. Similarly for college education. So, We've now been told ad nauseum that the price of success in the 21st century is a college degree, and yet the price of attending college keeps going up. Uh, and the preparation in high school for college seems to be going down. So there, the people are, people are really worried about these two things, and neither party really has addressed them well. Um, the Democratic Party supports a lot of programs designed to attract, to address these issues, um, but doesn't always get the funding for them that they need. Uh, the Republican Party insists that somehow the market can take care of these better than, these issues better than the government can. And so they're kind of at cross purposes. Um, and frankly, there's a stalemate. And then I, I would I would also add to that is you can't put all the blame on the parties, right? These problems, like the problems of inequality, like the problems in healthcare, are very very difficult to solve. So it's not like there's an easy fix stand, sitting out there that you that somebody's just ignoring. Um, th- these are tough problems. So I wouldn't I wouldn't lay all the blame at the feet of the parties. So going after hot-button issues instead of these less headline-worthy but deeply important topics has worked to separate us. Often in addressing constituency issues, they alienate another group. So take LGBTQ politics, right? The Democrats have been quite out front in supporting gay marriage and in supporting equality and and really looking seriously and advocating seriously the civil rights of, uh, you know, people of different um, sexual persuasions. So the Democrats have been all over that one. And what it does is it really then enrages evangelical Christians mm-hmm. on the Republican side who say, wait a minute, you know, this is not what we believe in. We think this is against the Bible. We think this is immoral. Et cetera, et cetera. So what what you have is the constituents when the parties are addressing many of these constituency issues, and what it does is it serves to rile up another constituency against it, 
Uh, abortion is another one. The evangelical um, wing of the Repu- uh, Republican Party has pushed for limits on abortion for many years now, and in fact, they've been making some progress state by state, as we've recently seen in Texas and Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the effect of that? That's the the effect of that is to make the feminists in the Democratic Party absolutely furious and mobilized. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's not that the the constituency issues aren't being addressed. It's that the constituency issues play into very, very um, deep-seated tribal and cultural mm-hmm. issues. And these rile people up like nobody's business. It's easy to see how this played out in the recent Virginia gubernatorial election, where parents' dissatisfaction with how schools handled the COVID-19 pandemic morphed into an obsession with critical race theory. Which is really a very complicated theory that existed in the in the bowels of academia until the Republicans mm-hmm. discovered it. Um, and they used this to, they took it to its almost illogical conclusion that somehow teachers were going to be forced to teach in the classroom uh, white children to feel guilty about uh, racism. And it really is a much more subtle and complicated theory than that. But boy, oh boy, did that get parents mad, didn't it? Mad enough to that education became the number two issue in the Virginia governor's race, which, by the way, it hadn't been at the beginning. Democrats struggle with these issues, approaching them in a different way. I think the party knows who it is. Okay, I think Democrats know quite well who they are. I think they've got a good um they they un, they they agree very widely on values, okay? Mm-hmm. And and the, their values of inclusion and diversity and equality. Those are their those are their core values. Um where it gets dicey is tactically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and also with with wording, um, when you look at what the reform movement that is that was called defund the police means, it really means actually helping the police to fight crime better. If the movement had been called let police fight crime or you know free the police to fight crime, you probably would have had huge support for it. So. Defund the police and police abolition is a very localized event. There are a lot of movement for Black Lives chapters in cities all across the the country, and they coordinate, but they are not the same organization. Jonathan Blanks is a writer and visiting fellow in criminal justice at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Connect the Dots producer Lauren Barry spoke with Blanks to find out how the defund the police label created tension within the current Democratic Party establishment. And how different Democrats identify with it. They're arguing for scarce resources on a, on a local level. And so they're saying, we want more investment in our communities. And keep in mind, a lot of major cities are one-party towns. They are Democratic-run. And so instead of being instead of arguing against the Republican Party as the status quo, it's actually the Democratic Party that they're arguing against. And so they're asking, hey, stop giving so much money to cops, invest in our communities so we can, you know, get our kids schools and get, you know, have health care and, and everything that, you know, a lot of other neighborhoods have. Mm-hmm. 
And so that works well on a local level because it gets people involved. It has a, it's a slogan. You can march under it, defund the police, you know, that it, it works very on a very local level. But on nationally, it doesn't sell. You know, we've seen uh, polls recently that support for defunding the police has plummeted and that, you know, you had moderate Democrats coming back from the 2020 election, coming back to Washington. You know, they want. Yeah, they. They won the White House. They took over the Senate, but they lost seats in the House, which never happens in presidential politics. And the moderates were blaming the left, they, the, the left part of the party, whether it's the socialists, whether it's defund. They were livid. And they're like, I never want to hear this stuff again, because police nationally are still very, very popular. Every year, Gallup has the Competence and in Institution Survey. And right behind small business in the military are the cops. Now, since the pandemic hit, you know, healthcare workers moved up into that top three, but the cops bounced back after all the tumult of 2020. And so while it doesn't always cut down demographic lines, it's still cops are very popular. And so it's difficult for the national Democrats to cater to one of their traditional constituencies, which is, you know, the black community, you know, sort of writ large, but of course there's, it's not really one entity. So there's this tension between the national and local local politics because Democrats need black votes, but black activists at a local level aren't necessarily working with actually in many cases against national democratic uh, policies. I was speaking with someone about this issue yesterday as well, and and they were saying that it kind of boiled down to like defend the police isn't the right way to to phrase that, that maybe people should come up with a different slogan for that, that makes it more appealing to the National Democratic Party. Do you think that's possible or do you think this is another instance where defund the police works really well for these local activists? People know what it means. It makes people passionate. Or do you think they could change that slogan to make it more palatable nationally? I, I don't want to get into like sort of tone policing of the activists, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I don't know how to resolve that issue. I don't know if there is a better way to phrase it, but it it's, you know, they want to be bold. They want to be like in your face and say, this is something we need because it is rather urgent for, for them in their communities. But at the same time, you know, and they're not really, it, it's not really all that radical when you think about it. Cause when, unlike the federal government, they can just kind of print money. Um, Municipal governments have a limited budget that they can run, and so they have whatever budget they can use, and they give us so much money to police forces, like out just insane amounts of money, because, I mean, it's one of the largest agencies. They've got, you know, um, you know, pensions and all that sort of stuff. So you've got a whole bunch of that just ties up a whole bunch of money. And so they're just saying we want to take some of that money and reinvest it in the community. But, you know, you hear defund the police and police are very popular. And then you have sort of the uh, right wing culture warriors are like, aha, see, they hate cops. They, you know, they're, they're trying to destroy America and that sort of stuff. And it just becomes a lightning rod that just becomes so difficult for the national Democrats to, to maneuver around. How do you think identity politics in general is playing into how both parties function today? So, I mean, I, I really think it is, it becomes a problem for Democrats on two fronts, right? It's a two front war in a certain respect for the Democrats. You know, against the Republicans, they are supposed to be, you know, they are thought of sort of defending identity politics. They are the people who are going to be in, in the traditional sense of identity politics, because all politics are really identity politics when you think about it. You know, it's like whether you're talking about farmers, whether you're talking about senior citizens, disabled veterans, they're all 
constituencies that they want policymakers to pay attention to and, and, and to, you know, help. And identity politics isn't really any different so long as we continue to have, say, poor black neighborhoods in most American major cities. But because it becomes a lightning rod for the conservatives um, and for like conservative culture warriors, which was certainly a, a like part and parcel of what Steve Bannon was trying to do in the 2020 election, um, excuse me, in the 2016 election. And uh, so it's it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Republicans continue to, you know, go that route. Obviously, they did in this past, you know, off year election in Virginia. But again, I don't know how much that actually affected the outcome. But uh, the Democrats have to like walk that line between we want, you know, middle class white votes and working class white votes, and we don't want to alienate them. But at the same time, the middle class, you know, blue collar white voters in like, say, West Virginia, or places that don't have a lot of uh, diversity already in their area, hear some of the rhetoric from, you know, the quote unquote, identity politics groups. And they're like, what do you mean white privilege? I've, you know, I'm barely getting by living check to check and all that. And it's just difficult to balance. Do you think that like identity politics and these labels can are a positive force in in politics? Do they help people get things done? Or do they end up being kind of a, a distraction or or something negative? I, I think to move the needle in politics, you need to have some sort of identifying force, right? You know, again, mm-hmm. if it's farmers, if it's gun owners, if it's you know, disabled veterans. Everyone, you're going to approach policymakers with, we are people affected by this, by this rule. And so long as America has poor black neighborhoods in almost every major city, in a lot of minor cities as well, there is going to be a constituency that is going to fall under the traditional rubric of identity politics. And until we fix those problems, that's going to continue. Jonathan Blanks, a writer and visiting fellow in criminal justice at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. The exact issues we face today may be different from the one parties have faced in the past, but cultural topics and identity politics have always been a feature of American politics. Republicans had their own major shift in cultural tone near the end of the 1960s. Well, it began to happen in 1968 when Richard Nixon ran on a platform of the silent majority. Mm-hmm. And he ran in when he ran for re-election in 1972, his tagline for the Democrats was acid, abortion and amnesty. This mm-hmm. is amnesty for the draft dodgers, not for um illegal immigrants, which is 
what you think of today. Mm-hmm. And what that said, what, what Nixon did, and the Republican Party has been very good at doing since 1968, is using cultural issues to appeal to a base that economically um, would not naturally be for them. For Democrats, a tone shift came more recently with the push for democratic socialism. Senator Bernie Sanders nearly won the Democratic Party's presidential nomination in 2016 and had a strong showing in 2020. And Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and the Squad have captured the public's attention and shed light on progressive issues favored by younger voters. However, there have been bumps in the road for the Democratic Socialist movement. There's not much evidence in the polling that Democrats like democratic socialism. But like defund the police, it may be more of a dislike of the title, the label, rather than the issues. One shocking race in upstate New York seemed to highlight that rift in the Democratic Party. In Buffalo, incumbent Mayor Byron Brown lost his primary to local activist and Democratic Socialist India Walton. But rather than stepping aside to let Walton run in the general election, Brown continued to run his campaign parallel to hers, urging voters to send write-in ballots to vote for him, since his name wouldn't appear on the official ballot. While it seemed unlikely that Brown would win, the numbers ended up in his favor. And not just because he had significant funding in his corner, but because he turned on his fellow Democrat and painted her as a sole socialist aimed at ruining the city. I'm really surprised. Tim Wenger is the News Talk format captain for Odyssey. He's also program director at WBEN News Radio in Buffalo. For the incumbent mayor to wage this write-in uh, campaign um, you know, just days after losing the primary uh, up to Election Day in November is really a remarkable political feat indeed. So when he saw opposition from India Walton, I don't think he took it. And he'll admit to you today that he didn't take it as seriously as he should have. And those around him um, are at fault, too, for not taking the opposition as seriously. And there was not a great deal of primary campaigning on the part of Byron Brown. And that's where that's what got him. So how much did labels play a role in that primary and the general election this November? India Walton wasn't taken seriously. India Walton was just someone who came um, to be, frankly, from uh, mainly her name recognition is from uh, the period of time where the Black Lives Matter demonstrations were were very powerful in, in this, this city, this market. Um, you know, we had a lot of uh, widespread uh, protests, um, some of them very aggressive, and she was one of the leaders of that group. Um, however, in the primary campaign, there really wasn't a ton of name calling and labeling. Once she won that primary race, the label was attached and it was affixed very, very, uh, you know, um, staunchly to her. And that was that she's a socialist. Um, and if Byron Brown was talking about her, it was never socialist Democrat. It was simply she is a socialist in the in, in simply that moniker, that name, that label. Um, you know, they attached a negative um, notion to it. And uh, that just led, I think, to what happened on Election Day uh, with the victory for Byron Brown. 
she every time she had the opportunity to speak to an audience, she would, of course, attach socialist, uh, you know, social democrat. Social democrat is who I am, and you know the you know the first uh, word she would say is social. I'm for society, you know, and, and trying to bring up bring everybody, you know, to some sort of a level playing field in in the city of Buffalo. On the other hand, the mayor's camp, the mayor himself and his uh, political operatives were very, very uh, savvy in, in, in defining socialist as a negative connotation, as something that, you know, was not representative of Buffalo as a whole, something that would slow down the economic rebirth that the city is, is enjoying right now. Um, there, you know, people in Buffalo, uh, you know, even 10 years ago said no one would ever live in downtown Buffalo. And now there are thousands of, you know, residents downtown. And I, I think he, 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 uh, successfully attached socialism to the, to, uh, being identified as something that would slow that progress down, that would stop Buffalo in its tracks. And that really, uh, that spoke loudly, and it speaks to all demographics. It speaks to the younger group um, that's living downtown, and it speaks to you know an older demographic in the city that wants to see Buffalo rise from the ashes, if you will. 100%, I think, labels made a difference here because, uh, you know, to the negative side of it, the, the, the opposing campaign from the mayor, um, you know, made made socialist of a negative connotation. And I think when you go out and you, you know, very often in, in the news world, I'll say if you line up 10 people or grab 10 people off the street and you say, what is a socialist? I think a lot of people would look at you with maybe a blank stare and not really be able to define it. The mayor's campaign defined it as something that is negative for the community, where she unsuccessfully tried to define socialist Democrat as someone who is going to stand up for a broader section of the population in Buffalo, that message just didn't cut through. Uh, you know, whether it didn't want to be heard or whether it wasn't effectively delivered, I'm not quite sure the answer to that. But the winning message was socialist equal bad. But that race in Buffalo is just showing the willingness more and more younger voters now have to identify as democratic socialists. The point is the system has not been working for today's young people. David Meyer, sociology and political science professor at UC Irvine, joined KCBS Radio last year to talk about what the socialist label means to young voters. I think the labeling is part of it. I, I certainly think there aren't a lot of young people in the United States. Democratic Socialists of America certainly don't push for the kind of socialism that existed in the Soviet Union or in Venezuela. And they're not fooled when their opponents say, oh, you just want to be like Venezuela, or Joe Biden's going to turn the United States into Venezuela. That's not a really credible claim. You know, Remember, uh, Elizabeth Warren said, I'm born-again capitalist. Joe Biden is, has never been anything close to a socialist, but they do care about things like affordable college. The most visible um, self-proclaimed socialist in the United States, somebody like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are saying, I don't agree with Joe Biden on everything, but I want to save the republic. Preserving American political institutions, but still drifting a bit away from the existing mainstream of the political parties. That's the same energy that's driven former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang to form a new political party called Forward. He thinks current Democrats and Republicans are incapable of delivering what most voters want. But is a third party even a viable option in American politics? 
Well, not unless we completely change our system, Kmark says. Third parties have never succeeded in American politics, going back for hundreds of years, for one simple reason. We do not have proportional systems in the U.S. We Mm -hmm. only have um, winner-take-all systems. You know, if you have a third party running for a congressional seat, odds, even if they get 20, 30% of the vote, they do not win. The person with the most votes wins the seat, which means that a third party can never get elect members of Congress. They have an awfully hard time electing senators. They just can't elect anybody. And if you can't, (laughs) if you can never win an election because it's a winner-take-all system, well, guess what? You're not going to last as a party very long because people say, well, they can't do anything, right? They're kind of useless. Instead, these issue-centered movements are absorbed by the bigger parties. For example, Democrats champion environmental issues and Republicans champion pro-life issues. Some voters may find their interests divided, but it doesn't appear to shake the party system. There has been great stability in the American party system. Basically, it's about the Democrats and Republicans have had about an equal number of adherents, about 30 percent and about 30 percent in each party, and about 40 percent who call themselves independents. Um, And that's kind of where we've been actually for quite some time now. So we're in a very, it's a close situation. It depends on what what independents do and how strongly people turn out. In this last gubernatorial election in Virginia, where the Republican won in a very Democratic state, a lot of independents who had voted for Biden just two years before voted for the Republican. So we have given America two parties that have very strong adherents who really care about politics and really believe in their parties. And then we have a large number of people who you know, who don't believe as strongly and who, in fact, go from go from party to party, depending on the election, the issues, et cetera. So what can Americans expect to see in the future? For Republicans, the party's shift to revolve around Trump might decrease and a more traditional conservative party might redevelop in the coming years. Everybody is, oh, Donald Trump is so strong. It's Trump, Donald Trump's party, he, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, I go back to these two gubernatorial races, which just happened. And in neither one of them was Trump a major player. Hmm. And in both of them, the Republican candidates did really well. In Virginia, the Republican candidate won by two, two points. In New Jersey, the Republican candidate came very, very close to winning. And New Jersey is a very Democratic you know, went for Biden and usually goes Democratic. So um, I'm, I, I'm of the opinion that what happened in Virginia has shown the Republican Party that, gee, they can hold on to the Trump voters without alienating uh, the suburban women, particularly, who abandoned Republicans in both 2018 and 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and because part of, listen, the, the thing about Trump is that he is, he never had a coherent ideology, right? I mean, his all, the guys are all over the place, right? The Republican Party used to be a party of 
free trade, he turned it into a party of tariffs. Um, mm. You know, he's the Republican Party uh, used to be, you know, is is basically been a pro pro life party, and Trump sort of came to that late, and and mm. obviously without much enthusiasm, he just mm. said it because that's what he was supposed to say. The guy is not an evangelical Christian by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so he he doesn't Trumpism is is an attitude, not an ideology, and attitudes just just last as long as the person exemplifying them lasts. And so what we've discovered in this last election is that guess what? You can be a you can be a Trump light. You can fasten on to some of the you know, cultural issues that Republicans have always been good at um, using. And you can hold that Trump base and you can keep Trump out of the picture because, frankly, he turns off swing voters. I mean, remember, before Trump, the Republican Party always used um, cultural issues to rev up its base. That's how that's how a party that was originally a party of big business and Wall Street managed to attract so many people from Main Street America was through cultural issues. And um, I think that they will exist without Trump, and I suspect they will be stronger without Trump, which is something that not many people are realizing yet. Uh, Mm. Trump is just, you know, look, women don't like Trump. Why? Mm. The guy's a bully, right? He's just a bully. Mm -hmm. Yells, yells at you, he, he shouts at you, he insults people, etc. Um, Trumpism without Trump may be the future of the Republican Party, and that's going to look very much like the very conservative part Republican Party that we know or have known. Though Democrats have had a tough year, Kmark says time may be on their side. I think for the Democrats, the tone shifts have been the enthusiastic embrace of American diversity. And that was always sort of there because African-Americans have been really for, since the 60s, the the core of the Democratic Party. But Democrats have been very, very set on being inclusive. So that means new immigrants. Um, it means people of different sexual persuasions. It means people with different people who are non-Christian, people of different religions or no religion. And I think the Democratic Party has been the become very consciously the party of diversity, which is uh, basically going to hold it in good stead in the future mm-hmm. when the demographics catch up with the Democratic Party. But with the current labels we're operating under. Is there a bigger threat going forward? The polarization that labels perpetuate could be a danger that spills over into the real world. This past week, the House of Representatives took the extraordinary step of censuring one of their own, Congressman Paul Gosser, who tweeted an animated video of himself killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with a sword. He insisted it was a joke. For this cartoon, some in Congress suggest I should be punished. I have said decisively, there is no threat in the cartoon other than the threat to immig- the immigration poses to our country. And no threat was intended by my staff or me. But Ocasio-Cortez took to the House floor to make an impassioned speech about why these actions that come from the polarization 
cannot stand. What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? This is not about me. This is not about Representative Gosar. But this is about what we are willing to accept. Not just the Republican leader, but I have seen other members of this party advance the argument, including Representative Gosar himself, the illusion that this was just a joke. Our work here matters. Our example matters. There is meaning in our service. And as leaders in this country, when we incite violence with depictions against our colleagues, that trickles down into violence in this country. And that is where we must draw the line independent of party, identity, or belief. I think the, the internet allows people to be rude and angry and violent. And uh, hopefully this will not spill over into actual violence, but from time to time, frankly, it does. And I think that's something that's new. I think that's something that's different. This episode of Connect the Dots was written and produced by Lauren Barry, Dempsey Pilat, Tim Scheldt, and me, with production assistance by Sydney Fishman. The executive producer and editor of Connect the Dots is Mallory Samira. Subscribe to Connect the Dots so you never miss an episode. You can find us on the Odyssey app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. Thank you so much for listening. I'm WCBS News Radio 880's Linda Lopez. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.